date of recording, the 25th of October, 2021. Welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Media with Vedanta Kari. For today's episode, we're talking about women in animation. And my guest for today is Professor Chrissy Guest. Hey, Chrissy, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Of course. I just want to quickly introduce yourself. Sure. Um, my name is Chrissy Guest. I am an associate professor at Ithaca College. Uh, I teach in the areas of multicam, television series production and directing, and studio production. But my area of research is women in animation, uh, the history of women in animation from 1970 into current day. Awesome. So how were you introduced to animation? Like, what did you grow up watching? Sure. I loved uh, animation from an early age. I watched... um, you know, Saturday morning cartoons, which was a traditional thing if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And I also could not wait for big screen releases of Disney features um, and, of course, uh, of DreamWorks features. Um, really excited to see any kind of animation as it was coming coming to. I can say that video game, video game animation during my day was Atari, so it wasn't really the cutting edge animation that it is today. But I was uh, a big fan of video games as well. I loved the Warner Brothers Animaniacs. Um, I, I grew up on Strawberry Shortcake, Takes the Big City, the Care Bears, um, Transformers, uh, Scooby-Doo. Um, I pretty much just loved storytelling in that fashion. And I liked the fact that animation allowed you to do things at the time that uh, in storytelling that Hollywood movies could not do and Hollywood tele- you know, television shows could not do because we did not have the VFX that we do today. So I really enjoyed that. And then, of course, when, um, when we started to get those types of VFX, uh, Jurassic Park, uh, Star Wars, things of that nature, I was completely enamored and wanted to know more about what I could do to work in that, in that type of uh, industry. Absolutely. I agree that animation can do things that you just can't do in live action. And that's, I think, its biggest appeal. And I also grew up watching a lot of those cartoons. Like I also grew up watching Scooby-Doo, Transformers. Um, I also loved Strawberry Shortcake as a child. So I think we have a little bit in common with that stuff. Yes, I was a big, big Strawberry Shortcake. And um, uh, My Little Ponies, which which of course, and, and even as things evolved, I love Powerpuff Girls. Of course, the Simpsons were a big part of my teenage years and they're still, you know, still running, which was just groundbreaking when the Simpsons uh, hit the screen. I was like, what is this? What is happening? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And did you ever study animation at the university level? So I, I did. Um, I, I went back to school. I started working in broadcast news um, right out of a two-year school. And while I was there, I was animating using um, the video switcher at the time and two-channel DVE. So I would make graphics in Photoshop and I would be able to use basically like shadow puppet, puppet technique where you use two images that you can uh, marionette together using a DVE or DPM on a video switcher. And I would create these little end graphics or like holiday graphics for the station um, 
just for fun. And then when a position opened up in the commercial end of things at the station I was working at, I um, applied and they said, you don't have the degree in this area. So I went back to school and studied graphic design and animation uh, while I was working full time. But I loved I loved learning. I learned so much about not just um, animation and animation history, but art history and its influence in storytelling and its influence in in design and the architecture that we, you know, so uh, so love uh, culturally. Not only like Ro- I, I studied a lot of Roman culture, <laughs> architecture, and um, and uh, Chinese uh, architecture, and I was just enamored by the Asian use of color and um, textures and textiles to create their their homes and kind of the landscape of what you see in um, the Forbidden City, things like that. Uh, that kind of Asian influence was really part of my. Um, part of my study. And so uh, I did study uh, for about uh, a year and a half. And then I was offered the position uh, before I completed the full coursework. And at that point, I took the position and began um, animating commercially uh, for the television station in Syracuse that I was working for at the time. And I really, uh, I really enjoyed that because I got to draw uh, which I do love to do. And I got to then also incorporate that at the time after effects was like new and exciting. Right, right. It's still new and exciting, but, uh, but I got to really learn uh, after effects at that point. And that really kind of culminated the things between VFX and animation, taking my drawing and kind of elevating that. Um, so it was really, it was really fun. And I, and I enjoyed it immensely. That's awesome. And I do feel like art has a very rich and diverse history, and I'm glad that you were able to learn about that. I mean, I didn't even know about the Asian influence and the Roman influence in modern artwork. So I, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, anyone who watches uh, anime uh, knows that there's a lot of influential Japanese and Asian um, culture and animation one of the earliest animations unfortunately was destroyed. One of the first kind of formally recognized was in China Um, and shadow puppeting originated there as well. So um, that technique of animation is, um, you know, that we see influenced even in Harry Potter when we see the, the, um, you know, the things that they're doing animation wise in those live action films to tell past stories, past history, that's all influenced from an Asian perspective. Absolutely. And before we talk about um, the course you taught in women animation and the docuseries you helped create, I think I just want to share my own personal experience with women in animation. Absolutely. So back in India, I, I grew up in India and over there, I grew up with a lot of 60s and 70s anime and all of them, except for I think two, had an all male cast. And um, in India, there's actually a stigma towards boys who watched cartoons with female protagonists. I remember uh, Kim Possible. Like, I really wanted to check out Kim Possible, but society was like, no, you can't watch that because that's a girl's show. And uh, you mentioned Powerpuff Girls. And I, I mean, my parents didn't care if I watched that stuff, but society did not allow me to watch Powerpuff Girls because it was seen as like a girl show. That's so fascinating because if you look at 
you know, that's very much within my research uh, that as part of the problem in animation was that it was viewed that boys would not watch a show aimed at girls, but girls would fully watch uh, a show that was predominantly geared at that time, gender stereotype male uh, story. Um, but I, you know, I watched T-Man and I watched uh, G.I. Joe and uh, I watched Transformers, like we said before. And uh, in, in Animaniacs, the, the girl was like the sidekick. But I think that, um, you know, now people realize that, um, there, I think that that is changing, uh, hopefully, uh, towards the understanding that um, it's very, animation can be gender fluid in that sense of, you know, um, boys, girls, uh, any gender kind of watching a good story. Right. Um, so interesting. Yeah. And I, I, th- I think it's changing like all around the board, not just in animation. Like mm-hmm. uh, I think Black Widow, it took 17, 16, 17 years to come out because I think there was not enough data to prove that boys and men would watch it, but it just blew the competition right out of the water. It proved everybody wrong that yes, men would watch Black Widow. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that there are there's so much, even with Wonder Woman, with when Wonder Woman was released for right. the DC um, universe, it, it basically showed not only would um, men and women watch a predominantly, you know, a female protagonist, but that film was directed by a woman as well. And so you had this, can a woman have a large box office, you know, superhero film uh, that could challenge um you know, their, their, their male peers and, and, and rightfully so it did. And so, um, I think things, things are starting to change and evolve in so many ways, um, for people to recognize that it's about story. It's about good story. And, um, you know, for me looking at his history, uh, the male dominated story has been told over and over and over. And so now predominantly white male story has been told over and over and over. And now we're starting to have these very um, intricate, very um, elaborate uh, storytelling and and in unique ways. And I, and I, I truly believe it's because we've opened up our, the writer's room, we've opened up the ability for the crew and other uh, storytellers to be part of the conversation and to, to lead in that way. And that has just created this new, you know, new landscape of stories that people want to want to see and want to engage with, which is so important. And I think I'm so done with people saying, well, there's nothing good to watch anymore because it's all been told. Well, then we haven't found the people whose stories we haven't told. And that, um, you know, that seems to be, even for Disney, something that is so important. Uh, Not that Disney wasn't doing that before, because I feel like Disney was bringing other cultures in. Unfortunately, they were appropriating them in their films and changing them in so many ways. I think with Moana, that was the first time really that they took the time to, to talk and to research and to develop a um, understanding of the culture and respect the culture and not appropriate it, but keep it as it as it was intended for the story that, that, um, they were telling. Um, 
I think that's that that really kind of earmarks a time whereas opposed to like Pocahontas or right. uh, Mulan, where they've they've you know manipulated the um, the culture in some way. Mm-hmm. And so, to my understanding, you have taught a class about women in animation. I was wondering if you could get into how that started and what it delves into. Yeah, it, and I extended on that. It's the course is women in film, television, and media, because I really realized that it was even though my area of research is in um, women in animation, my my life has been a woman working in television production, right. which is also part of part of the um, thing that I bring to the table in teaching this class. When I when I first um, decided to research women in animation, it was because of uh, wanting to teach a course at Ithaca College that would be, um, we do these like one credit mini courses. I wanted to teach a a course that would focus on the history of women in animation. And uh, this was back in 2015. And so I started to, you know, I said, oh, I'll, I'll do this. We were launching the new animation minor. And I thought, I'm gonna go and 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 create this course. It'll be fantastic. And it was very naive because I assumed there would be plenty written on women right. in animation, and there was like a one sheet from the library mm-hmm. um, <laughs> with like six resources. I was like, "What?" Um, <laughs> I was like, "This is not okay." Uh, and that was really what kind of um, propelled me into this this project of, I was like, well, then I'll make a documentary because I know from teaching, it is so much better when I can, um, have the person who's experienced it speak for themselves through their voice. And so a documentary is really a great way for students to engage with that person's truth intimately, as opposed to me regurgitating something out of a, an interview or a book and paraphrasing it. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a direct line to that person's voice and their experience. And so that was really what, um, perpetuated this, you know, this, this documentary. And I thought, well, there's not a lot of research because probably there weren't a lot of women in animation. Well, that is so wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, again, learned so much on this, uh, and I'm still learning, but there were, hundreds of women working in animation and leading the charge and that were just not recognized in the way that their male counterparts were. That's really what this project has become is an oral history to save this history of the women that have worked extensively in animation, not only as maybe the leaders, but also as uh, as the, the true animators and character creators, designers, um, creators of, of computer programs that have changed the, mm-hmm. the course of the industry, all of them uh, have had some way in which they have impacted animation and moved it in a direction that it would not have otherwise been moving in. And so that has been uh, really exciting. And so I started off just interviewing, I found a group called Women in Animation. It's a national organization. And I reached out to them and they were just in the middle of a reboot of their organization. The leadership was kind of changing over. They were kind of thinking about how, what way they wanted to go with this organization. And so they they had me contact their New York chapter, which at the time was was small, but it was still going. And I I talked with them. I talked with the with the woman who was leading uh, 
uh, the women in animation in New York. And, and she connected with me uh, a lot of different women who had been working in New York in the 1970s uh, in animation. And so I sat down and just interviewed them. And, and some of these interviews are three, four hours long of things that in the history of animation that many people don't know or discuss, not only from New York's per- perspective or the New York area industry, which was really commercial at the time, but also looking at um, you know, what was happening and transpiring in LA and Los Angeles. And so Women in Animation as an organization then grew up in LA and New York. And I, through that organization, met so many different amazing women, interviewed many of them, and then it just grew uh, from there. And I've, I've interviewed to date uh, 62 uh, women that have worked in the animation industry in some, some in different stages of their careers um, and in different roles in the animation industry. That's awesome. And so what exactly was going on in the 70s? Would you mind elaborating on that? Sure. So animation was dying. We were coming out of the strike uh, in uh, Disney. Mm-hmm. So some of the animators that were at Disney at the time uh, had left. Some had had moved from California to New York or kind of setting up shop. There were commercials being done in animation, but they were it wasn't expanding in the way in which people would have uh, thought in the 1970s. It was kind of like these animators have been here for a long time. They're not going anywhere. We don't really need anyone else. Right. Um, so there were a lot of women that were working, trying to get into animation, that were working on projects, but they were working sometimes as the colorists, as the you know the anchors and the painters. Some were moving up. The the Hubleys, uh, John Hubley had left Disney after the after the strike. Right. Um, he was blacklisted, so he moved to New York with his family and his wife Faith. And the, the Hubleys created animations every year and then incorporated their children, but they also taught a course at Yale. Two of the women that I've interviewed, one in particular, Janet Ben, attended that course and uh, it was impactful for her in her, in her animation career and what she did and where she went. Um, she worked for the Hubleys, but then she also began working for Viacom. So Viacom coming out of the 70s, going into the 80s, when everyone thought in the 1970s, okay, animation is like dying. Mm -hmm. Uh, The 80s come in with a vengeance. Like the 80s in New York, Viacom comes in and Viacom has MTV. Candy Kugel, who I interviewed as well, she did the the notable animation of the astronaut putting in the NTV flag on the moon. Wow. Um, so you have, you have these animators, I mean, these women that are just doing amazing things. She also animated Saturday Night Live was only on three weeks out of the month, three weekends mm-hmm. out of the month. The fourth was like a news show, a newsreel show. It was all animated. She did a lot of those animations. Um, and then of course, Sesame Street had started. And so they were doing a lot, some animations for Sesame Street. There was, of course, um, Strawberry Shortcake and the Big Big Apple City, um, which was kind of coming in. That came in after Andy Ann and uh, Raggedy Ann and Andy, Mm -hmm. uh, which again, Atisa Davis, who is an amazing animator, was working on that film um, as well. And then you, you just had this like 
eclectic group, right? But then it kind of just, it kind of, it kind of fell off. Berenstain Bears were on the weekends. It kind of just fell off until Viacom came in with MTV and that kind of, there was a resurgence. And then in Viacom, they said, we would like to launch our own cartoon area. And that's where Nickelodeon was born. So, and it was a department headed uh, by two women, um, one in production, one in development. And from there, we got the Rugrats, we right. got, um, mm-hmm. you know, all of those classics. And that really just kind of was the insurgents that we needed. And of course, MTV then brought in uh, Beavis and Butthead and all of these other, <laughs> uh, you know, um, childhood uh, uh, memories for me anyway. Um, but what's interesting is the amount of women that were working in Viacom at the time and also, you know, launching this department. Uh, that would become Nickelodeon. So women in animation, I think what's really fascinating to me is the amount of departments and studios that were led by women when their origin story began. So not only did Nickelodeon start there and then uh, it, when it moved to the West Coast, it was again, the head of the, the studio or the head of the launch was uh, a woman, but Cartoon Network, was also owned and operated by a woman and right. launched mm-hmm. by a woman. So you have all of these amazing stories of women really launching what people would remember as the most influential aspects of animation outside of Disney. And not many people know know their stories. Yeah, it's really sad. Not many people know their stories. I mean, I, I know some of the bigger ones at Nickelodeon, like Arlene Klasky co-created Rugrats, um, and there are tons of women in animation, like we've mentioned. And I absolutely agree with the whole 70s era where animation was starting to die. Like, I think I remember that Hanna-Barbera was really struggling at the time because they yes. were barely breaking even. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I did interview uh, a couple of people from Hanna-Barbera and they they were talking about how the one thing that they loved about that studio is they kind of just they had a whole section of people that just kind of did their own, um, you know, animations and they worked on projects for long periods of time and like worked on the art. And it's unfortunate that, that, you know, that model, they just weren't bringing in enough revenue to sustain that. I think that there, that could have been a a huge uh, opportunity for the, the look of an independent um, animation, but being supported by a large studio was very much what Hanna-Barbera was doing at the time. Um, you know, your title sequences for a lot of major films were done by Hanna-Barbera because film, you know, film opening themes, that was a way to kind of encapsulate all the things that were going to happen in the film in this very um, obscure and very artistic way uh, to kind of suck you in and have music and have these really quirky uh, and sometimes very dramatic animations um, as an opening theme which was great. But Hanna-Barbera did that. That was a lot of their work as well. It was. And so your documentary, this one we're talking about, is called Beyond Ink and Paint, Women in Animation, correct? Correct. Awesome. And so, yeah, we've come a long way in terms of female representation. Like, of course, we still have long ways to go, but it's great how we've come since the 1930s where Disney infamously said that women could only be inkers and painters. 
um, because yeah. they said that the rest of the stuff was like a boy's job or a man's job. And then World War II happened and they started training women in animation to fill in the men's job. So I really like how far we've come since the 1930s. Yeah. And I would say like Mindy Johnson uh, is a uh, historian from Disney. She has a wonderful book called uh, The Women of Ink and Paint uh, from Disney. In her research, one of the things I find really fascinating is all the chemicals that made paint stick to, um, you know, the the transparencies. Uh, All of that chemistry was done by women. That chemistry department, that paint department was was led by a woman as well. And so you have the science of animation, the early days of animation, which would have been the paint and how are we going to get it to stick to these transparencies? How are we going to get translucency? How are we going to get like blush on Snow White's cheeks? All of that was um, done by scientists at Disney that were women. Um, and then as you move through animation history, you look at the um, the things that are happening in computer sciences right. that have moved forward uh, animation and women have contributed immensely to that as well. And so there's there's a lot that can be that can be said about the history of women, not only in the the creative storytelling, the the creation of characters, the the full out animating, but at the foundation, uh, the techniques and the um, the science that allowed us to have this art form uh, was also being predominantly led by women. Right. And since you mentioned computer science, thing that gets me to my next point is that I think that the internet, like the advent of social media really helped more women express themselves on say YouTube or DeviantArt and Instagram. Like I've had plenty of animators who got their start on Instagram and DeviantArt. And if it wasn't for that, they would have never discovered their passion for animation. Absolutely. And that has become the leading way in which recruit recruiters in any of these studios are finding their talent. They're finding talent by looking at the work that's being generated online and tracking artists and tracking their work through through school or even those that are not in school that are just producing work and putting it out there. The internet has allowed people not only to be recruited by larger studios, but to independently make their work and monetize it and be successful as well and tell the stories they want to tell as opposed to being told this story will have to be changed because, you know, we can't do this. We can't do that. Um, Almost, uh, you know, a a sensory of their, Mm -hmm. um, experience. And so now the internet has allowed so much of that to, to transpire where talent is really being um, seen by the masses when normally you would have, you know, such a slim chance in the pipeline to even get your real scene, let alone get a meeting um, and get your work out. Um, and I think that's really also the, the, um, the amount of film festivals now right. uh, that have, you know, have really launched because of the accessibility because the internet allows so many people to, it doesn't cost hundreds of dollars to submit your film to a festival, not because of the entry fee, but because of just of the mechanics of having to get it printed and having to get it, you know, packaged and mailed and shipped. Those things um, were barriers that are, are no longer there for many people to be able to get their work out and get seen at festivals. Right. 
And so since we mentioned job recruiting, that gets me to my next point where it says that women make up 69% of the college level's animation student body, but they only occupy 23% of the creative leadership roles in the job market. So why do you think there's that huge drop between um, women in college versus women in the animation workforce? There's a lot, you know, there's, I'm asked this question a lot and, and conducting the amount of interviews that I have conducted, one of the things that came, comes to the surface is the college experience. Mm-hmm. So what's, my question is always not what's happening when they get to industry, um, but what's happening in the classroom. Um, and so I've focused a lot of my questioning and my research to what's discouraging someone from even grad, you know, that graduates with an animation degree, but doesn't then pursue animation. Um, and for me, that that tends, and, and at least in the research that I've conducted in the survey that I conducted, it, it comes down to mentorship. It comes down to um, a guiding factor. It comes down to engagement, uh, having students engaged, being engaged by the um, program that they're in, feeling uh, uh, secure in their um, in their decisions uh, and supported in their decisions, the support network that they have, all of those things factor immensely into whether or not someone will, once graduating, uh, be able to pursue their career. Um, a lot of times that that shifts. Uh, what I found um, is that women who enter an animation program, um, there are a lot of ways in which that will shift. Primarily, it's from discouragement. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from being in a classroom where already they are seeing a response that's predominantly positive for their male counterparts, as opposed to um, their to other other women in their right. program, or anyone identifying uh, outside of you know, male uh, gender can tend to have a negative um, experience. And so having not only classroom support, but having a support network outside of the classroom via, you know, clubs, friends, other organizations, people who cheer from home uh, or whatever, that's really vital to the success of um, a woman pursuing animation. Right. And of course, I don't have this experience because I'm a man, but I can imagine, you know, being a woman in this room full of men, you kind of have to, I guess, try a lot harder to prove yourself in the animation world. Yeah, it, it can be. Um, I think that's that's changing. I, I, I see that changing to some degree, um, uh, but it is it is definitely there's still some some throwback to the well, we already have a woman. We've diversified. Mm-hmm. We have a woman in a room. What's interesting to me is the amount of women there must be in those classrooms. They're still finding themselves outnumbered when in fact they're not outnumbered in college. That is interesting. I, and I think that there's a lot of movement towards studios recruiting at uh, universities and colleges uh, consistently um, to create that pipeline. So it's very clear how you move from from the classroom to industry. Because I think for a long time, that was not clear. There was a huge gap and people just fell into it. Um, I think also the the other thing I'm seeing is that a lot of uh, animators 
um, go into independent animation because again, they want to tell their story. Uh, They want to tell new and unique stories. They don't want to tell the same story that's already been told. Um, And so as we see women move into show creation, writing for animation, and we see that the story department becoming more uh, uh, predominant or a 50-50, then you're going to see that shift happen as well, where women find a place that supports their values. You know, the, the other research in this area that I think is worth talking about is that women are rule followers, uh, mm-hmm. produ- you know, a, a, a large amount of women are rule followers. If, if the instructions say to do this, then that is what they will do. And that's a mindset that I think is taught even earlier. It's taught w- well before college. And that kind of mindset where uh, a male counterpart will be like, well, it says they need this, this, and this for the job, but I'm just going to send my stuff anyway. Whereas women wouldn't before, but now we're starting to see that shift also where women are like, well, I don't have all the boxes, but I'm being encouraged to apply anyway. That's an important um, understanding in HR, in hiring practices, which are evolving as well. Right. And since you mentioned um, that women are expected to be rule followers, um, I found this interesting article where it says that, yeah, I, I found this article where it says that the traditional role of, say, directors is to be like very stubborn in your artistic choices. And that's why women are typically discouraged from directing because they're expected to be rule followers and not like stand in the way, I guess. Uh, not not a good way to put it, but I think that's why jobs like directors, like male dominated Yeah, I think there's another part to that. And that is when women do captivate any kind of authority, um, they're they're viewed in a much harsher way than their male counterpart. And so that is also hard because, you know, I think one of the things that is important to think about as far as the director role, and I think people are starting to see this too, is that, um, yes, you have to be authoritative, but you can also be collaborative. And it's finding the balance. And I think that um, while there are uh, really strong, you know, obviously male, we, we kind of, we see the male filmmakers that are studied and their, you know, their particular style uh, that has been cultivated or, or, or um, is recognized. I'm thinking like uh, Tarantino, you know, mm-hmm. like those types of of things where people go, Oh, that's that style because of this. And that's why on set he is this way. And I think that uh, we're starting to open up that there's not just one way to do things. And that's part of, of diversifying our crew. And so what I think uh, women can be very authoritative on set. I mean, I've, I've watched women, you know, manage households very well, Mm -hmm. as well as classrooms and fly shuttles and, you know, uh, manage uh, medical operating rooms. So there's no, um, I think that 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 myth that we're kind of, you know, de-stereotyping. At the same time, I think one of the things that I I find exciting is that women are also bringing that understanding that you don't always have to be authoritative Mm -hmm. to get the job of director done. And that's, I think, something culturally that's shifting in the film and television. You know, film and television are so different, too, because TV is a very collaborative enterprise, right? You have 
many writers you have, you can have directors rotating through a series. Um, It's a collaborative art. Animation is extremely collaborative in, uh, in the way in which the pipeline works. So I think, you know, an authoritative personality may not flourish in television and, and in animation, the way someone who comes to it as a collaborative visionary is really going to push the the industry even further in its art form. Right. And I do agree. Again, I don't have personal experience, but I definitely agree that when women are, you know, when women have to, you know, make decisions and be stern in their vision, then they're seen in a much harsher light than their male counterparts. They're seen as, I, I don't know, I guess bossy. They're kind of seen as a bossy person if they do something but if it was a male director they would not be seen that way at all so i absolutely agree with that yeah i see that in in so many in so many areas and to go back to the classroom i think that that is again i think where a lot of things um if change is going to happen it has to happen at the educational front um just as much as it has to happen in the industry probably more so in the educational front and i look at you know just like just as a professor like grading policies the influence of, of, of another uh, colleague saying, well, I only, I, at the beginning of the semester, I, the, the best you can do in this class is a B, mm-hmm. exceptional people may get an A, but the best you can do in my course is a B. I found early on in, in my academic career that that was, that was career suicide for me to say that, you know, how could, how could she, how could she? It was very, um, there was a double definitely a double standard for me um, as far as uh, how I would encourage and support people in comparison to my male counterparts. And that's something that um, we've worked to change. And, and I think that, you know, education has, uh, higher ed has a lot to do uh, to make that happen where women academics are supported in their pursuits of tenure given the way in which they're evaluated by students. I think we need to change at the college level, but also at, I guess, the primary level, because mm-hmm. again, I found this article where it says that um, technical roles such as compositors, special effects artists, and generalists are male dominated because society teaches boys to like technology and football. And you know, you've worked as a special effects artist. So would you say that it's discouraging for girls to pursue technology stuff and animation or just in general? Absolutely. So my, my sister is one of the lead UX designers on the East coast for video games and her, her challenges in this industry um, were another reason that this, this series was so important to me because there are uh, I've listened to the things that have happened to her. Um, You know, she Mm -hmm. understands the math and the science. She's also an artist, but, to be respected by engineers um, took more for her right. than it would have someone who just walks in and says, well, you know, that that male counterpart that walks in and says, I know it's this way. Oh, okay. You know, no, no question, no question of credentials, no question of uh, let, let me see your work, you know, none of that. Um, and, and you see that in, in almost this, double authentication for women, you know, like, okay, let me see your secondary support uh, for your fine. <laughs> um, but anyway, 
yeah, I think that that women need to be encouraged in STEM. Absolutely. Uh, and since we mentioned the college level again, where they're they're saying like, oh, we already have women, we don't need to fix anything. I think we do need to fix things, you know, because we talked about, you know, increased diversity, like telling more diverse stories of women. So I think we also need to focus on, say, women of color or queer women or just, you know, as many women as possible, not just straight white women. Absolutely. And, and I think that they're, you know, this culture that has been formed where there's only room for one woman at the table really uh, pitted women against other women. Mm -hmm. Um, It didn't work in the other, in the opposite direction. So there's there's also that culture and that, that we have to break down where women are not threatened by other women Um, that they are supporting each other, I think is really uh, vital. And that is part of this, this prolonged culture that's been allowed to exist that that we still see the remnants of we still you know we talked about the women that were in charge and that still are in charge um not all of them support other women right um and or they weren't able to support them it would have been for them career uh you know uh harmful to their careers as well i think it's um it's very apparent now that that's something that culturally we need to work on is there is room at the table. There's more than enough. But once there are more, you need to be supportive. I'm not saying blindly support another uh, person just because they have the same gender. Right. I'm saying supporting in the sense of everything they're saying is valid and what they're what they're pushing forward in a meeting is valid. Then having an echoing of voice is like that double authentication mm-hmm. that um, you know we need to do until the culture shifts. And that's also from allies. That's from male allies more so. Um, which is another part of, I think, in education is, is having these discussions in classrooms where it's very evident what is, why things are being done the way they are and encouraging um, men to be those allies and mm-hmm. to advocate for someone who, you know, makes a suggestion in a meeting. I've had it happen to me many, many times where I've made a suggestion. No one is acknowledging that I'm speaking and the person sitting next to me who happens to be male says the same exact thing. And it is the most brilliant idea mm-hmm. they've ever heard in the world. That is a culture that will ultimately lose you talented people. Well, because they will, you know, they'll find another place where their voice is heard. It will. Like men need to just stop taking credit for women's ideas. It's a very unfortunate thing that keeps <laughs> happening. Absolutely. I think that's what we just, that's what we need to do right there. Just stop taking credit for things you didn't think of. Um, that's, uh, that's absolutely it. Again, it's a, it's a culture that has been allowed to play out, um, without any kind of correction. And so now I think I'm seeing it in, 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 in the conferences that I go to, um, in the papers that are being written, the research that's being done, that people are trying to shift, at least in, in, in higher ed, in the film and television industry, trying to shift that, mm-hmm. that culture. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to shift it continuously because it, it feels like it's, you know, the 50-50 by women in animation is a great goal, but it's, it's taking a long time. It's not shifting as quickly as people may have thought it would even after the me too movement, right. It's, it's time's up. It's, it's all, it's taking, it's taking a long time. Mm -hmm. 
it is taking a long time. And I like how you mentioned the Me Too movement because that really brought attention to sexual harassment and sexual violence in entertainment, but also in animation, like Chris Savino, uh, creator of The Loud House, he was fired from Nickelodeon for sexual harassment. And it just brought attention, like you mentioned, that men just need to speak up for um, women who have been suppressed in the animation industry by sexual harassment and violence. Yeah, and we're, you know, and I'm seeing that that is that is one sense of hope that I'm seeing is that now in large, at least in larger studios, I don't know in the independent sector, you know, independence kind of kind of off the radar as far as HR goes. Um, but in your in your studios um, that have even streaming contracts, uh, the HR department is much more aware of what needs to happen with these complaints. And I see them being taken much more seriously in the sense of this is we need to we need to re, we need to investigate whereas before a complaint may not move past a manager now with the the proper management tra- uh, trainings and other things um hr is becoming much more aware of of concerns earlier than they would have in the past mm-hmm. yeah i really hope that that changes because we need to support as many voices as possible. Nobody should feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable working in animation. Nobody should. No, I agree. I agree. And I think it's really important too, um, uh, you know, that people are taking action beyond, you know, the studio front that you, you were talking about the Nickelodeon case. And at that point, the guild also, I think that was the first and uh, first member to be uh, removed from the guild and will never be allowed back into the guild. And those are important statements by, um, you know, the, the animation industry does not have a national union the way uh, IATSE protects like the stage lighting. And, um, you know, we've, the DGA is for the Directors Guild of America. The, the, the guilds and the unions, um, the animation industry has the, animation guild but it it services uh los angeles county right um it does not reach to new york or vancouver or well vancouver's out of the country but uh new york or um you know georgia or any of the new mexico any of these places where we're starting to see more and more uh film and studios kind of uh grow and of course new york has always been uh, a place of animation, but in, in Georgia, you have Atlanta, you have, you know, Cartoon Network, you, there needs to be uh, consideration as to how the guild can expand to offer protection to its, to anyone working in animation, um, right. because there is so much that happens on the independent sphere that just isn't reported because they're not over some overbranching HR department in a, in a large studio that says, this is going to be a problem. Um, I think that's important to, to recognize, um, cause something I didn't know, I mean, I was researching how many women had been, you know, what was, who was the first woman, uh, director into the guild. And they were like, we don't represent animation. Mm-hmm. So a director, a woman who moves up in television animation or in film animation, uh, is not, uh, a member of the director's guild of America because they don't represent animation. Um, even though a woman can win an Oscar for directing an animation, an animated film, they, until they do live action, um, they're not part of the, the director's guild. 
I didn't even think about that. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. It was an interesting thing to discover and go, oh my goodness. Well, they can't even give me a number of how few women there are directing animation because no one is actually tracking that. Right. And I think you mentioned um, with independent stuff, you do really don't know how bad that stuff can get because they're not reported. They don't have a traditional HR department if they even have one. Right. Exactly. And that's, that's, um, that's also something I think, especially uh, in, in recent days with the, you know, and, and, and the way in the which the unions are looking at some of these independent productions and their safety that's happening or not happening on set. Uh, we also have to look at what that means as far as a reporting mechanism right. for animation in particular. What is the reporting mechanism for someone who's working at a small uh, independent shop um, or working for like doing animation at a news, a news outlet? What union are they in or what, what protecting um, overseeing uh, guild are they able to report to or, or lean on for information? They may be the only person in their uh, video production company that does animation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's, there needs to be an understanding or a, a call to action as far as finding ways for these people to have resources. Exactly. And so I guess we're starting to wrap up the episode here. And so where do you see the future in female representation in animation? I definitely feel better than I did in 2015. (laughs) I've seen, you know, I've been tracking the women that I interviewed back then and I've been tracking their careers and it, it is definitely changing for the better. Uh, women in animation, the organization has now become an internationally recognized powerhouse right. uh, as far as resources for uh, women entering the field and men. Uh, uh, several men uh, are in the leadership now mm-hmm. uh, that are great allies. And I think that that is, um, that is just demonstrating where our industry is moving when you know the hope is that we would not need an organization uh, that's there just to support women, but um, I feel like right now it's such a, a huge advocate for women, a huge resource uh, that it is changing the industry. So I I think you know given everything that's happened from from the time I started this project till now, uh, I see uh, a lot changing for the positive. And so that gives me a lot of hope. And I think that we're going to see more and more women entering the field and also more stories driven from a perspective that's completely unique to what we've seen in the past. And so do you have any advice for female animators who are listening, both current and aspiring do you have any words of encouragement for them yeah i would say you know like we've said through this this entire uh podcast one of the one of the great things is that there is an organization women in animation that i would highly recommend students can join uh professionals can join i think the other great thing is get your work out there the internet is a wonderful place to do that and um, you know, also support other, other women, other artists that you see online. I'm constantly trying, you know, buying art from up and coming, uh, artists to our, uh, female animators. And I really look at, you know, or that identify, uh, outside of, uh, the male gender, not mm-hmm. to say I don't buy art from men too, but I, I predominantly buy from, uh, from, uh, from women. But I, I think that, 
you know, get your work out there, find someone in the industry. That's the one thing that I wish people had told me is that people in this industry uh, are really giving of their time with, especially with people that are up and coming and right. students in particular, reach out and find someone that you, you know, you're not um, monopolizing their time, but you're asking for their advice and their encouragement and just the a sounding board once in a while. Mentorship is such a huge part of this um, process. And so I would encourage um, women to also do that. LinkedIn is a great resource for, for finding someone, as is women in animation. They have a great mentorship program. Um, and let everyone know what you want to do. You have to be very vocal and you have to be persistent about this is what I want to do. Even if you're introverted, it is good to tell people this is where I want to be because the more people you tell, the more people they can connect you with to help you get there. That is awesome advice. Thank you so much for that. Um, and we've already talked about a bunch of women in animation, but are there any particular ones that you want to quickly highlight? Yes, absolutely. I know I, I talked about a couple, but um, Yvette Kaplan is like the center of my project. She is an amazing animator. Uh, storyteller, writer. She uh, she directed Beavis and Butthead. She directed Ice Age. Um, as far as the animation direction, she uh, she was there at the origin of uh, Nickelodeon with Doug. Mm -hmm. um, she animated uh, for that that as well. Um, she's recently been on Ducktales. Um, she's done a a slew of amazing things in her animation career and. Very few people know who she is. Um, and I would say an incredible storyteller and very much someone who has influenced the uh, animation industry. Right. And so, Chrissy, do you have any final comments about anything we've discussed or anything that we forgot to discuss that you'd like to mention? No, I think we've covered it all. I hope people will visit our project website, um, beyondinkandpaint.com and check out uh what what we have coming out and yeah i think we've covered i think we've covered it all yeah we did um <laughs> all right professor chrissy guest thank you so much for being on this episode of let's talk media with vedanta kari i really appreciate it thank you so much for having me this was fantastic i i absolutely enjoyed our time together and i look forward to listening to your future podcasts thank you